Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Just The Facts. That was a weird hello. Hello, how are you? Yep, welcome to Just The Facts. That sounds better. The podcast that features candid conversations with your favourite actors and filmmakers. And welcome to episode 21. How are you doing? Good? I hope so. And if not, I certainly hope today's episode is going to change that because I have a fantastic guest today. A brilliant filmmaker, actor, writer, director, This guy does it all, and in the process, and in an incredibly short amount of time, like four years, has built up an amazing CV of films. So, if you're listening to this episode, there is every chance you already know the work of Jim Cummings, inside and out. Maybe better than me. I discovered him 2018 with his, in inverted commas, debut feature, Thunder Road. We'll get into why I'm doing inverted commas right now in the interview but I loved Thunder Road then obviously The Wolf of Snow Hollow loved that as well but today we're going to be spending a great deal of time talking about his latest feature The Beta Test it came out in cinemas in the UK on Friday just gone it is out now you can go see this in a cinema and I cannot recommend it enough it's a brilliant psychological thriller come black comedy come horror come satire on the entertainment industry it's wild it's one of those movies that you have to just experience yourself it's it's wild it's wild that's the best way to describe it it's uh, set in this changing landscape um, of Hollywood against the backdrop of the ousting of this toxic masculinity culture that has pervaded there for so long. It's also about a whole load of other stuff and a guy played by Jim stuck in the middle of it all. Look, I mean, this is why I didn't want to try and explain it, because it is a movie you need to go and see yourself, but go and see it, you should, because it is fantastic. You'll hear all about it in our chat today. That is coming up in like 30 seconds time. Uh, Very quickly, our little bit of housekeeping to do first. Uh, Do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JTFpod for all the details on the show. And of course, congratulations to some of the people who do follow us 
at JTF Pod, Jessica White, Ben, Laura Jackson, Daniel Herrera, Jad Samur, Tom Boyd Hall, Ali Billet, Movie Fest UK, I Am Grout, and Devesh Sood all worked out from the clues on our social media that Jim Cummings is my guest today. I think we might have to start making that clue a bit harder because that is an ever-growing list as more and more people discover the show, which is great, but work it out. So I don't want to stop congratulating the people who do. We're going to have to make the clues harder. That's that's something that's going to have to happen. Don't forget you can watch this full interview in glorious Technicolor on our Just The Facts Pod uh, YouTube channel, JTF Pod YouTube channel on Friday. Uh, and also, why not visit our rather special new website uh, that my producer Grant built for us? It's wonderful. And sign up for our newsletter to become part of our lovely little Just the Facts community. If you do like the show, please take the time to rate and review us. It's a massive help on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. But let's do this, yeah? Please welcome to Just the Facts, the supremely talented Jim Cummings. How do I sound? Do I sound okay? You you actually sound fantastic. Yeah. I'm th- do you know what? Thank you for asking. Because some people don't bother to ask. And <laughs> I, I, you know, it's that British thing. I sometimes go, oh, I feel too embarrassed to um to bring it up. So then I don't bring it up. And then I spend probably, you know, longer than I need to editing, trying to fix it. But you sound good. Yeah, that's what uh, I've realized directing in my early career was, was being too nice (laughs) to people at the expense of the product. And um, (laughs) yeah, don't do that. Be be mean if it means that the thing is going to be better. Yeah, I know. But then you, you run the risk sometimes. Like, for example, sometimes people have got the lighting how they want it because they've decided this is how I look best. And then you don't want to blunder in at the start of an interview and make it awkward by going, sorry, could you open open the curtains or something? Just get some more natural light on your face because they're then they're sort of like on the back foot because they're like, I thought I looked good like this. I, you know, they have to relight <laughs> themselves. It's a sensitive, who knew how sensitive an experiment Zoom would be? Yeah, the benefit with me is that I always look like shit, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> that, 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 sir, is not true. Where are you? <laughs> Where are you at the moment? I'm in London. I am on the east side of LA. I'm coming to London on the 10th. Um, they're going to screen the movie a bunch of the Prince Charles, and I'm going to go schlep around to a bunch of different theaters to say hi to people. Um, but no, I'm in, I'm in the east side of LA, uh, kind of close to the Hollywood sign, ironically. Oh, okay. I was going to say that's... I, and that is home, right? That you're not just there at the moment. That's home for you. No, yeah, this is my garage. We we finished the movie in this room on the computer. I'm talking to you through. Oh, really? Yeah. I think I read that at the end of the credits, like finished on um an, an Adobe it, program. I won't pretend I know which, but all I'm, of uh, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We use exclusively Creative Cloud, uh, which is just kind of a bulk um, user-friendly pro-consumer, you know, product suite. And uh, it's not the special kind of pro tools or anything that you'd use to make a big movie. We just did it entirely out of the box, which is fun. That's amazing. Because if you hadn't told me that, there is uh, no discernible difference in the quality of your film with, I guess, you know, for want of a better example, a, a, a Marvel Marvel MCU movie. It looks as good. It's crazy. And we shot it for 250 grand American. So like it's it's doubly strange that the movie looks like a huge budget movie, but we were able to do it in a backyard and in our offices. No, wait, 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 wait. So the, the budget, so just to clarify, the budget yeah. for the beta test was 250,000 yeah. American dollars. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. That yeah. is, that is, yeah. that is, uh, that's nothing. I mean, that's what yeah. do they even call that. That's like m- not even mini, but that's like micro they call that budget. SAG ultra low. Uh, Thunder Road, my first feature was 190 grand. And then we went and made a werewolf film with a, an American studio uh, with MGM called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And that was $2 million. And then we've gone back to making smaller budget movies that we have complete creative control over. Yeah. I, well, I mean, so wait, so you didn't have complete creative control over The Wolf of Snow Hollow? Because I love that. I love that movie, by the way. I love it. Oh, I mean, you're, in, in my book, you're three for three, which is a great oh, CV wow. to have right now. Thanks so much. That means a lot. Uh, yeah, no, with, with The Wolf of Snow Hollow, we had like done the movie and we all agreed to do the script that we set out to do. And then um, we started pulling at the threads of the sweater in the edit. Um, 
it was difficult. You know, when you make a movie that's that big, you have 60 people on set at any given time. Mm. And uh, there's a good quote from David Fincher. He says he showed up on day one of Alien 3 and realized that a union dolly grip doesn't want to push a dolly for a 29 year old. <laughs> and uh, I learned that lesson uh, very hard in the snowy hills of Utah. Um, but but no, seriously, it was, you know, any time that we wanted to get a scene with six shots, we probably got five uh, mm. if we were lucky. Um, and it's just so big. There's so many people. It's like taking an aircraft carrier to the grocery store. So let alone um, not being able to touch the camera and all the rules uh, that you have of not doing an independent film. Um, it's it, it was it was a very different kind of diplomacy that we had to have on that set. Um, and then on the next one, my producers promised me I'd have complete creative control and I would be able to edit the film. And so I edited the film for 16 months and that became the beta test. That's great. I mean, to go back to that David Fincher quote, that is that's that that's an interesting idea. I remember reading about it was uh, I think it was uh, to go back to your initial point about you know you gotta you can't just be nice and, and let the film suffer. I remember James Cameron when he was shooting Aliens over here found that the crew over here were not you know particularly receptive to an American director coming in and telling them how it worked. They were like, "This is our tea break, mate. We have a tea break yeah. right now." And you know he did not pull his punches uh, metaphorically when it came to getting shit done. Yeah, James is a really weird guy uh, and like and is notorious for being a huge uh, prick on set sometimes. <laughs> no. I mean, obviously, he's made the biggest movies ever and some of the best movies ever made. And I'm sure, you know, Hitchcock was probably the same. I'm sure mm. Andrea Arnold gets pissed at times on set and needs the film to be what it needs to be. Um I'm a Buddhist. I like don't have that kind of anger in me. I, I use my characters for that stuff, um, mm -hmm. and it comes out through the performances. Um, but no, it's a it's a challenging thing. Most people um, want to be nice, uh, and it's a, it's an instinct that I have as well. But sometimes it will just hurt the scenes, and I just at a certain point you have to go. Well, why are we doing this? Like the movie's mm -hmm. not going to be good. We have to make sure that the movie's good. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what we're talking about here and perhaps the behavior of certain directors historically in, you know, famously uh, in the past, you know, does kind of tie in with some of the themes of uh, the beta tester and what yeah. was acceptable then and how it isn't now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. It is a, it is a very different landscape in Hollywood now for the better. Um, and these toxic masculine type A pricks are no longer welcome in the community and they have to pretend to be these nice guys. Um, <laughs> and it's really funny to watch. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a good quote from my producer, Ben, who says, um, uh, if something needs correcting, you can expect an overcorrection. And, uh, that's what we're seeing in Hollywood right now. So to go back to where you live. So, I mean, it ties into this because obviously if you're in LA, I did assume you lived in LA because a lot of this film, it feels like you have seen firsthand some of these monstrous creations that you've put on screen up close, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, no comment. Uh, but no, no it's, it's never anybody particularly, but we had, um, you know, a thousand run-ins with people with that kind of corporate doublespeak bullshit of, well, let's keep talking. And it's exciting. We're all excited. This is great. Let's keep talking. Let's circle back. All of that kind of uh, bullshit we wanted to include in the film. And um, that was just kind of uh, this mantra that we heard in Hollywood of let's keep talking. Let's not do anything. Let's just keep talking about doing the thing. And, and we realized like all of the hustle that happens in Hollywood with that, we're like, you can be brought on as a screenwriter to write something. And if the development team is just talking about doing the thing, they're getting paid to develop the thing and you're not making anything. So the longer that they can continue to talk about making movies and not doing them and getting bad reviews, uh, the better and the more money that they'll make, uh, the better they'll feel the more money they make. Um, so it's a strange hustle in Hollywood where everybody's talking and not actually doing anything. And so we wanted to kind of make fun of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's that age old adage, isn't it? You know, it's called show business for a reason. Yeah. It's a very strange thing where like the technology is there now. You and I can be talking across the world and making audio and video together. Um, and it's never been easier to make movies. And in the history of film, it's it's only going to get easier to make content in, in your garage if you want to. Um, and nobody's acting like that. Everybody still feels like they 
have to spend years and years and years talking about doing something before they can go and do it. And I think it's, it's terrible. It, it's up to independent filmmakers to, to bottom out the system. And I think that the, we're seeing it happen. Well, let's talk about that. And let's talk about you. Because before we get into the beta test, I did want to sort of touch on uh, your debut feature, Thunder Road. Uh, I mean, I know it's not your debut feature. There, there was a feature a very long time ago, 2010, 2011. But like your, your first oh, feature. Oh, you've done your research. Okay. Well, <laughs> your first yeah. feature. Yeah. I, I we count that as you... my first feature. I call, I call, I call No Floodwall here my, my zero feature. And then I also made uh, a series of six short films that then we re-edited to make it into a feature called Minutes. So technically, Thunder Road's a bit of my third, but it was the first time that it, that it was any good. So I call that my first feature. <laughs> um, so 2018, it comes out and it just, it, it has this wonderful reception, uh, you know, it, it, uh, among other prizes, it, it won the Grand Jury Prize at South by Southwest. How, how did that change things for you? Could you, can you quantify whether that did actually change things for you? The only thing so, so, so the, the the biggest change for me was making the, the short film with my friends in six hours in a funeral home in twenty late twenty fifteen, and then it wanting the short film winning Sundance twenty sixteen, mm. um, and that was a real catalyst to people taking us seriously. But it never converted it into anybody giving us money or giving us the financing that we would need to make even a small budget feature. So I had to do the Thunder Road feature by running a Kickstarter campaign and then bringing in private equity from strangers on the internet that wanted to help out because they saw the short film and appreciated it. Um, so it didn't really qualify us in the eyes of Hollywood. And it still didn't when we won South by Southwest. Um, you know, but it did qualify us in the eyes of the public and people that were interested in, in helping us out um, in in, the, in a fan base, which is insane that we were able to do that. Um, so even after winning South by Southwest and getting into Cannes with the Thunder Road feature, the highest offer that we got from a distributor was still half of the budget of the movie. And <laughs> wow. the budget of the movie is 190 grand. So like we were, we were going to be selling the product. We were selling this feature film that's doing very well around the world um, for half of the budget that it cost to make it. And we just thought, well, no, we're not going to do that. And so we self-distributed it and made the entire budget back of the feature in the first two weeks of being in French cinemas alone. Like it, it, it's such an ugly predatory landscape for independent film. And we kind of stumbled into it in the time when you could completely circumvent it through using iTunes aggregators or calling movie theaters yourself and impersonating a distribution company and saying, Hey, would you like to play our movie? And most people had heard of the movie by that time and said, yeah, oh yeah, we want that one. So is that because Thunder Road fell, its release fell sort of 2018, you know, which I, I don't know that it's changed so much since then, really. That, the landscape of cinema is very much, you know, we want franchises, event movies. If you want a theatrical movie, it needs to be part of an existing um, IP. It needs to be uh, something that, you know, uh, is going to bring in, you know, hundreds of millions because those are the movies that are being released theatrically. And I know that's not entirely true because you do have the smaller movies, but they tend to be like genre films, like a horror, for example, there's a, there's a huge wealth of horror that costs under 10 million. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And my first feature that I was a producer on was a film called uh, 13 Cameras. And we shot it in 10 days in the backyard for 35 grand American for nothing. And it's grossed a million dollars so far. So like <laughs> it, it, there is a lot of um, gold in them hills of doing a genre film. But I, I, I hate to say it like I, I'm going to plant a flag there and say that I disagree where the movies that are coming out in cinemas are all franchises and sequels and reboots and all that stuff. But people are sick of those because they're made for the broadest possible audience, which means they, they can't curse, they can't show sex, they can't show violence. And some of these movies are like trying to show that they're, they're trying to say that they're big, cool movies for adults and they're actually made for children. And mm. so there's this huge chasm in the marketplace where if you can show real cursing and real sex and real violence, all the stuff that these pervert audiences, you know, my <laughs> audience uh, wants to watch. Um, uh, you can fill that void and you can show people what they can't see on TV. And that is how rock and roll came about. That is how any of these giant movements of, um, you know, populist movements and artwork came about to, to um, get people to actually laugh instead of kind of chuckle along throughout a movie. Um, 
I think I think really we are now at this incredible cusp where movies like Minari or uh, Parasite are getting nominated for these big awards and they're made in living rooms in countries all over the world. It's not the big franchise things. It's not even the big like dramas that are coming out around the world that are doing well because audiences are kind of kind of sick of it. So even if it didn't, so even if Thunder Road um, didn't change the way the industry viewed uh, you as a filmmaker, did it change things for you personally? Did it did it perhaps silence any doubts you have or give you a validation that you realize that, wow, like there is an audience out there for the work I'm making? Sure. And also, and not just that, it was a complete confidence change in me where I was, I've had all these like fears and feelings of inadequacy that was kind of imposed on me by just being an independent filmmaker for 10 years and struggling. And like, it is such a lonely experience making movies and having these daydreams and then not being able to make them any good. Um, and it took me doing this short film and really caring about it to understand how I spoke the language of film. It was like learning a new language of like how, how you do it. And then finally becoming pretty fluent at it was um was was incredibly fulfilling and a confidence boost for me um but then beyond that really seeing the test that we were doing of fusing comedy and heartbreak or comedy and horror and that that was working um was really wonderful to sit in a movie theater and watch these movies and have people gasp and laugh within a minute um or cry and laugh within a minute i was like cool this genre fluid um, stuff is stuff that we can do really well as independents that Hollywood can't do. Um, it's very difficult to do it. And, um, and we've been very, very lucky. So, so yeah, all of that kind of became this acceleration towards, well, let's just keep doing it. Let's just see how, how far we can push it. Let's see what kind of cool stuff we can do. And then we raised the funds for the beta test through the internet. Like it was never through a Hollywood system. We never would have gotten this film made in Hollywood because it's so um, <laughs> yes. radioactive, I guess. Um, I, can, I can believe that. I think that of all your films, this would be the It's the biggest <laughs> fuck you to Hollywood. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I think really we're not turning back. Like the fact that we can make movies and finance them from a laptop and then edit them from a garage and a laptop, we feel like hackers. It feels like mm. we've cheated the system in this funny way or completely circumvented the system in this funny way um, and still are able to play on the world stage you know, in competition with some of these movies that mm. cost way too much money that suck. It's amazing. I mean, you, from my end, you're absolutely right. To watch um, the beta test, it's, it's just such an exciting experience because it is you know, unique and original. I don't feel like they quite sort of encapsulate what I'm trying to say, but there is an energy to the writing. There's something unexpected around every corner. There's there's an energy to your performance that just feels so new. And okay, uh, cool. And it should. I guess it shouldn't. There should be more films like this. There should be more films that you sit down and watch and are just so surprised by. And it's sort of like it. It blindsides you because you are kind of accustomed to a certain way of film language a certain film language these days yeah it's funny we're like those are my favorite kinds of movies when you're watching zodiac or corpus christi or parasite and you're like what the hell is going on like well, right. you kind of have you're forced to play detective um and so long as it's still funny so long as you can still laugh at the characters that carries your attention level throughout the film. And then, you know, there's scares and murder scenes throughout the movie as well. It is this kind of goofy Chinatown uh, detective story as well mm. as being this erotic thriller. Yeah, there's like 10 movies in this one movie. And I think we, we might've like overstretched ourselves, but to watch <laughs> it, it is like methamphetamine or something. You watch it, it's like, oh my God, like, it's just constant barrage of things that are happening in the film. Yeah, and like, you know, I mean, I've seen it happen firsthand. You know, I've sat with people who have, <laughs> been on their phones while watching cinema yeah, bro. And, and and yeah. and i genuinely think it is possible Studio to do that. executives man <laughs> i i came i came out with thunder road and we would bring the dcp to a studio and watch it with people and it would just be glowing faces in the audience because they're all mm. on their phones doing this thing they don't give a shit they don't watch movies they don't like mm. movies it's, it's a weird thing and and like they know that the filmmakers in the crowd and that they're probably watching them it's like it is just this complete facade of oh i'm excited yeah your movie's great oh, i love Loved it, loved it so much, and they weren't even in the room. They weren't they didn't even watch the movie. It's terrible. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, I guess to go back to you know the bait test, it's it, it's a film that you can't watch like while you're on your phone. Though, like I, I do think there are certain movies these days that 
I got, I had this terrifying thing that um, I can't remember which streamer it was. One of the streamers was looking for a way of having scripts written that were uh, designed designed to be watched by people who would be on their phone at the same time as watching a movie. So you'd have to repeat parts of the script because it would make it like they're, they're so aware that people sitting at home are on their phones that they're designing television programs for that. And so to watch something like the beta test, it's like, you can't, you, you put, you, you look away for like five minutes and you're missing like some, like, like a wonderful intricacy. Isn't that so funny that they're trying to change the the narrative storytelling stuff instead of just making better movies? That it's just like, oh no, we have to adapt to we we have to build the road for the walker rather than change the walker's yeah. interest in the road. Yeah, it's stupid. So um, I, I remember when Thunder Road coming out over here. Obviously, um, it found a UK audience. Uh, I, yeah. I wonder how much how much you love that because I know you're a a, a huge oh, fan of UK comedy. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a dream. I mean, I grew up watching the young ones and Alan Partridge and so like all, and you know, a bit of Fry and Laurie and Jeeves and Worcester. So much of my childhood is based around English comedy. Um, and it's crazy that like Steve is now a pen pal. Coogan's a pen pal of mine now. And so it's like, I actually get to, if you make something impressive that is in the tradition of these styles, the people who are your heroes will reach out and be like, hey, I saw that thing. You copied, <laughs> you copied Alan in this one moment. And I'm like, oh, fuck, you copied. Um, yeah, man, it's, um, it's, been, it's been really great. So, so oh, he's, yeah. he's been in touch oh. and God, well, he's been in touch and God. I think you stole from me, but I yeah, still yeah, love that. He, he, yeah, it, it, was, it was really funny. He was like, I was like, oh, if you think that's all I've stolen from you, you're very, uh, it's, it's very underwhelming. Um, no, no, no. So, um, I, yeah, I hung out with him for almost four hours the first time we hung out. And it was like uninterrupted eye contact, just talking about the craft. And we're sitting right next to each other at the Four Seasons Hotel um, in Beverly Hills. And there were so many things that we did where it was like, how do you do it? Okay, now how do I do it? And it was kind of like talking about forensic comedy and every small thing has to be planned. Every mannerism has to be planned. Um, and in America, that's not the case. America is so based in improv comedy that it's like, we'll just set up eight cameras and do some over the shoulders and then we'll fix it in the edit. And it's just, you know, get these improv comics to come in and do the thing. And that's, I, I always hated that. I was really bad at that stuff. And um, I had to rehearse a thousand times for it to be any good. And talking to Steve, he was like, when he was coming up and there was comedy troops, they were always making fun of him for doing radio. I was like, oh yeah, you're doing these like radio commercials. You should really be into acting. And that created this vitriol in him to be like, I'm going to fucking bury these guys in the ground. I'm going to be <laughs> the best comic in the world. I'm going to create the best character in human history. Um, and he has. So, and he's so, yeah, going to be a he's going to be a small time radio DJ as well. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to play this pathetic small town conservative <laughs> radio guy. Um, yeah, no, but 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 really, I had those almost exact same um, uh, enemies. These people that I despised in comedy, um, who I thought were phoning it in and just doing cheap, stupid stuff, and that became ambition in me. So it's been really wonderful to kind of have like shared history in that sense. The same axe to grind. It's very important. Um, if if you are trying to become successful, to have those um, people that you want to you want to beat up. <laughs> I know, I, I I get it. You know, it is. It's like you know, whatever feeds the beast. Let's say inside you, that, that kind of dissatisfaction is one thing. But then you need sort of to be like angry, isn't the word, but more determined because Petty. of it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. Is the word. <laughs> yeah. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. It's, it's but it's petty. been it's been helpful to me. Like really to get off of the couch. I was a producer for many years. Um, and I would go to film festivals and see these blocks of short films that one of my buddy's shorts was playing in. And to watch eight great shorts from around the world, I'd be like, oh my God, that's so cool. People are doing cool stuff in Poland. That's really that's cool. Um, but it really took the three shorts in the block that kind of sucked for me to go, oh, I could do all I have to do is be better than those shorts. Okay, I see. Then I could I could do well. And it really was that seeing things get celebrated for their mediocrity um, was the thing that actually got me up to, to make stuff. It's petty and awful about the human mind and male ambition, but that was ah. the thing that got me off the couch. I mean, it's fine. It's, I think it's only when you don't realize that and sort of don't know it that it becomes problematic. As long as you can go, yeah, look, I'm aware of this this flaw in myself that's driven me. <laughs> um, you like Ricky Gervais as well, though. I, I, the reason I bring this I up is because... So. You 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 downloaded all these old XFM shows, huh? Wow, you did your research. Oh my god, yeah. And, and I downloaded them before they were ever available on Spotify. This was like you know 2006 or something when it mm. was actually just after they came out. 
Yeah. So the only reason I bring that up is I did the show before him on that radio station. So I You're basically, <laughs> I did the Ricky Gervais warm up show just before him and Stephen Cole came on. So I did 10 till one on a Saturday morning. They did one till three. So I used to listen to that show because most DJs would be straight out the door and I'd sit in the office listening. So, so when they say, Hey, thanks guys so much. And then they start their show. Who's talking about you? Wow. Yeah, that was me. That was me on my way wow. out the door to stick the radio on in the office and listen to it. Cause it was brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. That's so funny, man. Small world. And now here's a here's a weird one because we're going to get into the beta test now. Um, and I don't know. I don't know whether I, I think that I, there's a uh, your character Jordan. I felt there was a little bit of John Cleese energy uh, about him. I I like I, when I this wasn't while I was watching, but afterwards I was like, shit. There's that whole sort of faulty towers, Basil faulty thing where it's a man constantly desperate to stay in control, sure. as the world around him will not sure. let him to. Sure, I actually haven't thought of that, but in looking back, there's moments of me like doing these goofy mannerisms that are <laughs> like John Cleese's height, um, and like using the body comedy to to humiliate myself. Yeah, that makes sense. So, how's this for a description? Then this is what I've got written down here. I did have to write it down, so okay, you'll have cool. to. I am going to have to read this. So, how's this for a description of the beta test? An erotic thriller, black comedy, horror satire on the entertainment industry. Yeah, that's really good. I'm going to steal that. We've been looking for a synopsis because um, it, it's difficult. I mean, like people will say like, what genre would this be? And I'm always mm. like, whatever Parasite is, I don't know. Like whatever, like it's just, it's like a comedy, horror, drama, poignant thing. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's genre fluid. I have no idea. But yeah, I'm, I'm much less eloquent than what you've just spouted. I like genre fluid. I've not heard that term before. Genre fluid. That's great. Is that yeah. a term? Is that a thing? Is, is that yours or is that out there? I've, no, I'd... I've I've stolen that from gender fluidity, and now I'm like, right. all right, cool. We could be genre fluid as well. Um, cool. And I realize, like, I've been I've been trying to coin a term about um, what our movies are, and I think genre fluid is kind of the best one. Fucking great! It's really okay, good. good. It's really good. Uh, so, in a nutshell, and I'm, I I do mean like it's a big nutshell, but it's a nutshell. It's about a Hollywood agent who begins to question who the fuck he is, <laughs> and what it all means, and can no longer keep up the fake identity he's built himself. See, I'm so glad to hear you say that because some people do the reductionist thing of calling him a sociopath and relating it to American Psycho, but it is just a facade. It's just mm. this kind of weird business thing. I don't think he's a sociopath. He's just this very confused, horny idiot, you know? Mm. Um, and so I think, I think because of that, um, he, he's a bit more likable. The allegiance of the audience loves watching him fail and they want to see him learn his lesson, but he's not a monster, I don't think. So I think that's I think that's true. No, I think, I mean, I think it's a testament to your performance that, um, that at no point, despite everything that Jordan is in this film, you do sympathize with him. Like you do feel sorry yeah. for him. Yeah, it's funny that like all it takes is is uh, is him when someone says, uh, "Here, have a drink. We're all having fun." He goes, "No, five years sober." Uh, but I'm wondering, like immediately, the audience is like, "Oh, it's, okay." Like it's funny that you can have somebody be an absolute monster, and if you have them save a cat from a tree in one scene, they're like, "Wow, he's got a heart of gold." <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, it's the famous save the cat, isn't it? Yeah, that's of course. The, that's that's the whole thing. But it's um, it, it started life, and we'll get onto the 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 backdrop in a moment but it, it really started life as as more of a, a a thriller based on an idea that yourself and pj mccabe um your writing partner and directing partner on this came up with you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which was about a guy just receiving this purple envelope, which offered him a no-strings-attached sexual encounter. And, and that was... Oh, there they Got are. All the purple envelopes. Sorry, yeah. I have a thousand <laughs> purple envelopes in my apartment. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so where did that idea come from? That the actual the actual genesis of what this film grew into? Yeah. So I had a a, a meeting with some friends, and it was a, a, a husband and wife and a couple other people. And I'm in a I have a significant other, my girlfriend Julia, and we're kind of like hanging out. And then um and then we all got up to leave, and it kind of became this moment of saying goodbye. And I'm half through the hug of hugging this this girl. Um, and then I started to back away and there was kind of somebody else was talking, but as I kind of backed out of the hug, distracted with something else, she just kept her hand on my back uh, for a few seconds too long. And it, there was no doubt in my mind that it was an invitation because it was private and nobody else could see it, but it was kind of this thing of us being close to each other that it was like, I see, that's, that is a forceful hand on the back. Um, and it was this small thing. And I was like, that's really weird. That's really uncomfortable. And I mm. don't know how to handle this thing. And then I thought like, well, what if, what if I got a letter? What if somebody got a letter that invited you to a no strings attached sexual encounter with an admirer, not a stranger, it's not Tinder. It's like someone has designed this analog thing to come into your mailbox and possibly completely derail your life. Um, and I was like, that is such a crazy Twilight Zone episode. I don't know what I would do. And I called PJ and I was in the grocery store. I was kind of like hiding. I was like talking to PJ in the grocery store and he was in a grocery store with his mom. And I said, what would you do if you got this letter? And he goes, oh man, hold on. And he like walks outside <laughs> and we had this like hour and a half long conversation about he was like, no, I wouldn't go because he'd get murdered. That's an insane thing. <laughs> and then he was like, let's keep developing this thing. This is a neat, you know, a genesis for, for a movie. And then because the movie's about lying and cheating, of course, we had to set it at a talent agency. Um, and so we like did all this research about the biggest liars and cheaters in the world. Um, and we kind of formed this narrative about uh, data scraping, how you would actually connect people from their search histories um, and public uh, you know, social profiles and uh, digital footprints and stuff like that. And PJ did all this research about big data and we kind of worked that into the film as well. But it was fusing because so much of the agency world is based around connecting people and this, this, the, I mean, it used to be a social network agencies. Mm -hmm. It used to be something to connect um, creatives together and to kind of separate the public from celebrities. It was kind of these like glorified call centers and mail rooms and set up in the 1920s and thirties. And now that we have real social networks, those platforms um, and, and societies that were agencies are kind of going away. They're having much and much less utility. And so that became very interesting to us that it was about connecting people and also about agents connecting people and showing this all through one person's stress in a collapsing industry. It just worked. And we're like, all right, cool. Now we have to run at this thing as hard as possible and humiliate these fuckers. It was, uh, it was really, really fun. So was it fun for you because you exist outside that world as well? Because I mean, in, in the sense that as an independent filmmaker, you know, you could literally like go, really go for them without any fear of repercussions. 
I mean, what are they going to do? Like, honestly, <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's a comedy. It's like a South Park episode. And if you're going to take offense to something like that, like, you're not cool. Like, you, you take the fucking joke. And that's mm-hmm. a good sign of, this, of the fury, uh, the, the scary, like, power dynamics that are set up that, like, you mm-hmm. can't even make jokes about these things because you'll be canceled. You'll be mm-hmm. blacklisted from the system. But we've never had any help. Like, 99% of the work that I get comes from Vimeo. It comes from, like, people... People reaching out and saying, hey, I saw your things. Could you like, you know, it's a, or like IMDb Pro. Like it, it's usually never the Hollywood system. It's directors who like my stuff who call me to act in a movie of theirs. Um, so yeah, I and, and then with, with this one, we got the financing from the internet, it, completely circumventing the system and the, 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 the way that you would do it normally. Um, and then we were able to produce it by ourselves at our production offices in our homes and apartments and offices to make it look like it's a Hollywood agency. Um, and then, you know, we played it on the world stage at Berlin Ali and Tribeca and kind of all over, which is insane. There's no difference from how we make movies and how, you know, Tom Cruise makes movies. It's just smaller amounts of private financing. <laughs> it is amazing, this whole backdrop uh, that you've, you've set it against. Because I, I was reading about it at the time, the idea that the agencies, and like you say, it was because they were losing their power. Like, you know, they because of social media, because their clients could now, you know, build relationships, industry relationships without uh, having to go through their agent. They were like this huge sort of injured, flailing giant looking for control, getting the control back. So they, as I understand it, they were basically wanting to set up, they wanted to be safe. They were creatives themselves. Yeah. They wanted to have a studio Mm. because I mean, the, the, the insane thing is like, first of all, it was terrifying if you worked in the industry and you weren't, going to be part of one of these mega agencies but then the idea that they were lowballing like their own talent because yep. rather than making money for the talent they were then going well actually if we pay if we pay this writer less then we're making more money as their agent yep talk about a conflict of interest that somebody who's desperate, who is a creative, who's very talented comes to these people hoping that they will support them. And instead they are their bosses in a weird way. It's a complete shift in the power dynamics of how it should be. And no industry functions like that. Like, and, and these fucking war criminals were trying to change the structures of Hollywood to exclusively benefit them in the film. There's a moment when I say, um, uh, they're not going to let us take all the money. Why do we think they're going to let us take all the money? PJ explained it to me. We're becoming travel agents. And it's so poignant. It's like the, the most honest this guy is about this fight that was happening in Hollywood at the time to prevent the Death Star from winning. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it was a real rebel alliance that was the, the Writers Guild of America putting up this fight they didn't have to put up and say, no, you can't become the studio system. You guys are criminals. Uh, we should not let the bad guys be in charge. And they won. It, it, it's it's unbelievable that this happened and nobody's talking about it. Mm. It's, it is. It's, I mean, it's strange. I, I sort of I tried to sort of uh, understand whether there was a similarity to what was going on here in the UK, because I mean, the weird thing is, like, obviously, I think most of these agencies, I, I'm pretty sure uh, WME, uh, CAA, they have arms in the UK. Uh, but we, what we don't have is a, a writer's guild, I don't think, as an equivalent. So and, and yet it is still, I guess, like the best movies, like it's a very easy concept to understand, you know, like the social network, you know, you suddenly understand coding Moneyball. You're like, I get baseball and you can enjoy the film without actually knowing all of um, the intricacies of what's being talked about. Yeah. I find that to be very interesting. Like it, it, the spoonful of sugar thing of making a comedy, but it's also about something very important. Social network is one of my favorites. Um, the big short is one of my favorites. It's mm. like to be able to have it be comedically driven while also being this fast paced uh, detective story kind of of what a big system is like, where it's also very well researched. Um, we had 11 assistants, agents, ex-agents and ex-assistants break their NDAs to give us testimony and emails and document dumps. So that it kind of like added up to what was all of the research in the film that took us a year and a half to do, to gather. Um, and just like the vernacular of how these people speak, we wanted to get it right because if you're going to be making fun of something, you ha- it, can't, it can't be somebody saying, oh, that's not how we're like at all. Um, and so it was, it was very worth it to do that. And we were kind of copying Adam McKay's style uh, for these moments because we knew that that was going to work. It is, it's, um, 
It's it's fascinating because I mean to to, uh, to have actually got all this first hand information. I mean, because even uh, imagine if you hadn't. Imagine if no one had responded to uh, to to that request uh, that you, I think you put out on Twitter, wasn't it? It was Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You, you were like, "Has anyone got any? This is what we're doing." Um, it's amazing that people responded. To be perfectly honest, because um, you know, I, I imagine a lot of those assistants do live in a state of fear uh, about their jobs. So I guess maybe it was a release. For them? Yeah. I mean, really, it's like some people were too scared to do it, but then their roommates spoke to us or their ex-girlfriends spoke to us. Mm. So like we had people, some of the more telling stuff about the relationship of Jordan and Caroline in the film was about uh, being with a liar, being with someone whose job is lying. And then they come home and tell you how much they lied that day and how it affects the human relationship um, of uh, being a partner with someone, how how your partner sees you. Uh, it, it changes because of the um, corrosiveness of your job decisions. Um, and I, I we just found that so interesting. So like legitimately, I tweeted once being like, hey, does anybody have anybody in the agency world? I'm trying to, to, to do some research asking for a friend basically mm. and then I delete it uh because we got so much outreach and it was like oh no people are gonna find out about it but I got several dms on many different platforms LinkedIn not just Twitter being like hey I know somebody my roommate or like this kind of thing and so we were able to kind of have these coffee meetings and these phone calls and um and sometimes they would just send us stuff of like this is this is someone's mailbox this is kind of what it's like and then they were also driving us to like the Sony hacks uh, of like these specific email chains uh, to the WGA and people trying to screw over the creatives and how the sausage is made in the industry. Um, it was very interesting. It was a weird time to research it, but everybody was so open. And it was a bit like when we would go to the next meeting, we would tell people, um, you know, testimony that we'd heard from the previous meeting. And then they would say, oh, that's nothing. I can, oh, that, that's crazy. And they were kept on trying to like be more impressive than the previous uh, source that we had. And so it was very easy. You know, it was like, um, I, I'm sure Bob Woodward makes it seem like it's a hard job, but if someone comes out of the White House and is like, oh, you got, you had heard from this guy. Oh, well, I got, I got all the juice. You, you don't even know. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, cause he, I mean, cause obviously like, uh, you're fascinated. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're fascinated. I don't want to put words in your mouth by the, the, you know, the, the male ego and this, this, the, this idea of men just uh, like toxic masculinity. I mean, God, it was only what was it was only April. Was it this year when it was, you know, it all came out. The Hollywood Reporter did that big piece about Scott Rudin, Scott Rudin. And, and all of that, you know. Slammed a computer on his employees' hands. And mm. also um, some of that stuff is like, is so that that's commonplace, I hate to say. Like, I mean, obviously the physical violence and having to go to the hospital or urgent care is like kind of rare. And I'm glad that that story came out. And then also like a lot of the team from the social network was like, yeah, that's bound to happen. I know, I've known Scott for 20 years. I was terrified of him. Um, Anytime we would come into the office, people would jump. Um, and it's funny, but it's also awful. We, we, we heard testimony from someone at one of the top four agencies, and um, they said that they weren't allowed to be in the bullpens, which I guess they were like, it's worse. And they're like, oh, you're new here. Um, you should come and work in the front. And they were sitting in the front doing reception. And uh, in the first week, the source said, uh, even if though I wasn't in the bullpen, it didn't stop me from seeing a fist fight in the office with these two macho guys in suits were slamming each other up against the glass doors of the front with the like logo of the agency. Um, and, and the source said, not only did I see it with my own eyes, I watched it on the security camera footage later um, when everybody's like, oh yeah, this is crazy. There's a high drama happened in the office. And mm -hmm. the source said, the crazy thing wasn't that it happened. That kind of stuff we saw roughhousing all the time. It's a, it's a, culture run almost exclusively by men. But the source said, the crazy thing was that nobody got their cell phone out. Nobody filmed it. And then nobody filmed the security camera footage afterwards. It was like this culture of silence of, oh yeah, we know how bad and toxic the workplace is, but mm. we could never tell anybody that. It's like North Korea or something like that. It's this strange um, psychosis that as soon as you enter the building, you are a subordinate to this system because we all watched Entourage at the fraternity house and we know how this power dynamic works. Um, it's a, it's a culture of fear and it's awful and I hope it dies. And I guess also, you know, at the point when things like this were happening, simultaneously, you know, if you, you go back, what, 10, probably about 10 years and these characteristics 
weren't like like held up as like this is appalling behavior they were almost celebrated you look at exactly it was it was this idea that yeah but he's the most feared producer in hollywood and it was like a badge of honor to be this scary man who did horrible things and you know one it's only so you know if you if you work there but the press is going you know for example you know this guy is you know oh he's a legend for just getting shit done uh, then you're not going to come forward you're not going to say anything yeah it's really bad to see the, i think it was the oscars with some award ceremony where harvey was there and seth mcfarland got up and made a joke about like um i forget what the joke actually was and i'll butcher it but the the he acknowledged that um to make it in hollywood you'd have to sleep with harvey weinstein and the whole audience laughs and he has this kind of like smarmy cutesy smile like hey i'm making these insider jokes and it's a, a, a horrifying documentary in retrospect it's this kind mm-hmm. of like origin story of a super villain um um, and 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 that kind of blind eye cutesy stuff against women is so scary to look back on, and um, and it just shows how pervasive it is, and still is. Like this, Harvey's in prison, but the system that supported this guy, all of his assistants, all of his co-producers on the thousands of movies that he's worked on, all knew that this was happening. If you work with somebody for ten years, you know how they eat. You know how many times they sneeze when they start sneezing. Like, you know everything about these people. And those people aren't in prison. Those people are still having very successful careers in the film industry. Um, I've met some of them. And they're, <laughs> they they act as though, oh, yeah, no, everything's great. Don't worry about it. They do the fucking Jordan Hines thing. Uh, and it's 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 scary, man. It's like, and and I'm glad that I came into this when, you know, I'm, I'm young enough to be able to see the problems for what they are and understand the, the power structures and and that comedy can sometimes be a cleanser of this thing. And if you can make fun of these people, they lose their power. Um, but yeah, it's a it is a dangerous and toxic work environment, particularly for women. And um, and I think it's changing, uh, but it's still the same people in power. I mean, well, that I mean, like you say, it, it, uh, some of the humor dark humor brilliant humor in this is being able like through your character jordan to 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 basically illustrate this uh i mean so what's the line when you're talking to your assistant uh jacqueline where you're like i can't say what i want to say to you right now because of the direction direction the agency and the country is going and it's like this is this fucking joe rogan line coming out of this guy just like oh my god like (laughs) of course he's a conservative or whatever yeah it's like um yeah that kind of powerless uh teeth removal of the male ego is just so funny to watch and it's great mm. to watch it with an audience because everybody laughs out loud at that moment of like mm. oh he he just couldn't wait to say this you know it's like has nothing to do with what's happening in the in the scene but because he couldn't call her the b word in the office <laughs> yeah. anymore yeah. he's uh he's frustrated it's great mm. and then of course there i mean you know you were just talking about him but there is that incredible line in that incredible monologue in that incredible scene that you uh, deliver <laughs> at the end in the car part where you're like nobody knows what's going on and everybody still wants to be harvey which is yeah. it's it's a really i just it sent shivers True. down my spine when I, I when i heard it it's true. And also that stuff of like everybody's wearing suits and kind of on standby because the emperor was beheaded. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, what do we do now? I guess, do I, can I still look up to this person? It's like, it's like when a cult leader, uh, you know, gets put in prison or something. And it's, it becomes this complete shock to the system where everybody's having to reanalyze who their role models are and what a role model in the film industry should be. It's wonderful um, to see Mount Rushmore get blown up and then uh, to not know where where you stand. And I I love that line. It's two of my favorite lines in the film because that's how it feels right now in Hollywood. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not going to say too much about this uh, this scene because it's uh, it happens at the end. So I'll just call it the diner scene. But there is a there's some lovely dialogue which really sort of helps, sort of resolves some of the questions that the film throws up in a really interesting way. From yeah, um, yeah we can talk about it. Yeah, well, we can talk about it. I don't. 
I don't know. I don't want to spoil it because it's such a great film and it's such a great moment. And I don't think you watch this knowing what happens to Jordan. I certainly wasn't sure how it was going to end. So I'm just being very, very careful because people may may well watch this before and listen to this before the film. So then let's let's talk about the film that we stole it from. So it's from No Country for Old Men. Uh, And at the end of No Country for Old Men, he's talking to his brother and he says, look, what you're dealing with ain't nothing new. This country's Mm -hmm. hard on people. Uh, uh, And then he says... um, he says, uh, 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 this, uh, he says, the country's changing and it's not waiting on you. That's vanity. And it's this like beautiful uh, monologue. And we kind of steal stuff from that for this moment where uh, my main character's uh, fiance, wife at the time, um, can kind of make this concise uh, description of what everything was of the film and, you know, this nice little wrapped up bow at the end of the film. And a massive release for the audience. And for me, yeah. it's sort of like the calm after the storm. I sort of like, okay, good. Oh, okay. Things are going to be all right. I just, you just need to like stop stressing about all this shit and just go be honest. Are, yeah. yeah. Be honest with your partner and be honest with yourself. And, um, and yeah, don't lie all the time. It's a very important message. <laughs> And if all if all that I don't, if all that sounds too serious for anyone listening, like fucking hell, what is what, what's this movie? I mean, there are uh, just it's a comedy. Of, it is a comedy. <laughs> there's 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 one line as well. I mean, you, we touched earlier about agents, you know, deciding that they were suddenly creatives. Why not? We can do it. Other people do it, so we're going to be creatives. And it's that line now. <laughs> Sorry, we've just signed Tiger Woods as the director. They're going to reboot Caddyshack with dogs. <laughs> Sorry, uh, it's, that, that may, it's such a funny line. It's just it sort of encapsulates everything in, in one line: the insanity of it yeah. all. It's a stupid, stupid industry. It's a lot of <laughs> bullshit. It's important to not step in it for too long and keep it out of your mouths. Oh uh, yeah, but I am. Um, I do love it. Um, I do love it. So we touched on this earlier. Do you, so do you think, like, uh, as a result of the writers' guilds win over the agents? Do you, do you think? the structure has been altered in Hollywood and there's going to be maybe a positive change to the way studio films oh, yeah. are, are, are made. And does, does that, does that even interest you or are you just happy oh, yeah. doing what you're doing? I is going to strike right now. I mean, like the, our union of basically the, the infrastructure of making movies, every single human being that works on film sets um, is repped by a, a union called IATSE and they're potentially going on strike because they've been working over 14 hour days, sometimes six days a week, seven days a week um, for overtime and getting paid nothing. And it's such an unhealthy work environment for people, it's killing them. Mm. And only now post pandemic and during the pandemic, do they say, well, what do I want in life? I mean, I don't want this. I don't want to, I don't want to be a workhorse until I'm 70 and my knees give out. That's not a life. I am away from my family. I'm sacrificing my body and my mind to this thing to make a shitty TV show for somebody. And it's going to end after three episodes because, you know, who cares? Um, so, so uh, yeah, I think the power is, is becoming uh, now more with the people where people in America are sick and tired of taking it and they can support a strike when it happens now, because we all feel that, you know, we, we all get to a point of breaking over the last year. And um, I, I think supporting the workers is a very important thing. So I think really the industry is changing because people could say, yeah, actually, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that job. I'm actually going to walk <laughs> off. I'm actually just going to be over here. Uh, and if you want to, if you want to talk to my union rep, you can do that. Um, I think that's the only power we have sometimes is um, collaborative bargaining. And as a, as, as a creative yourself, you know, would would you ever consider working within the the studio system? I guess I ask because you know there there. I don't know to pick a name out of a hat. There are there are people who have started in shorts uh, and then worked on independent features, like Kerry Fukunaga, who I just yep. I, I saw Bond the other day, and, and and you know obviously now he's directing Bond. You know, does that offer an appeal to you? If, it, if the movie's going to be dope, I mean, yeah, I'd love to do Bond. Um, uh, if, if, if they want Bond to be an American next time, I'm right here. Nobody's going to ask me. Um, uh, but no, seriously, like looking at Destin Daniel Cretton, who made um, a Short Term 12 and then now is doing big Marvel movies. Like, I think that's and, and if he has free reign to be able to make cool, you know, Jackie Chan, you know, fight scenes and stuff, I'm so down to, for that. I love watching that movie. Um, I'd love to do that, but nobody's asking me. And also I'm really enjoying making stuff on my own. It's been Mm. nice to not pull punches. Um, I think what's gonna happen once this movie comes out is it's going to be this great litmus test where if somebody does reach out, they already know that I've 
research the bullshit. And like, I think that, that the cool people are going to go, yeah, let's work with these people. They get it. Yeah. Um, and I think people have been complaining about this stuff for the last 10 years that it actually might help us in Hollywood, even though we've made fun of so many of the people that work there. Um, I think it might be a great separation of the wheat from the chaff uh, to find cool people that might support us. Yeah. Cause I don't think you can ever underestimate um, like awareness being a, a very valuable thing and people going, wow, they're aware. You know, it's that it, it's self-aware and awareness of everything. And right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I read a really nice review, and, um, which compared to your performance. And I hope you don't mind me quoting a review because you might be someone who stays away from reviews. Oh, uh, no, it's okay. Okay, cool. Um, they, they compared your performance to the very best of Jim Carrey. Uh, yeah. And I, I wondered how you felt about that because uh, I'm, I'm a Carrey fan. And um, I think the examples they used were were um, things like Eternal Sunshine, Man in the Moon, when he sort of went off and, and started sort of, he left behind the, the mania. Yeah, there's one moment in the in the parking garage monologue, mea culpa at the end of the film, where I do this mannerism that I think I accidentally stole from Liar Liar, but he says, um, he says, and I didn't look at the place card settings email. And it's like this very specific Jim Carrey, 1990s uh, mannerism. And I think so many people when watching the movie see that mannerism and go up oh, Jim Carrey. And it's like, it, it, it stresses me out where I'm like, you know, I was, I was dancing between like the line of Jason Bateman of just like, Hey, how are you? No, see that what's wonderful about that. And then I'm like, no, that's Jason Bateman. I can't do that. And then we have to go back and reshoot the, that moment. Um, there's all of the, or Will Ferrell, you can't scream in a parking lot at someone ridiculous lines without people going, Oh, that's Will Ferrell. Um, I, I love Jim Carrey and I met his team and he's just this really calm, quiet, like eccentric painter in his office. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, he he became very famous at a very young age and is now doing only the stuff that he cares about. Um, and and I think that's respectable. I, I really like that guy. I think he's a very, very talented man. And he has such a rubber face. And it's very much like mine, where all it takes is me raising my eyebrows or lowering them a little bit. And the audience is like, oh, I know what he's thinking. Mm. Um, and so I, I feel I feel a lot of camaraderie with that dude. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess you, you touched on the theme there. It, it is. It's, it's sort of what you equate happiness to. Like, is happiness success? Is happiness, you know, making the, the biggest movie in the world one year, but having very little actual control over what the finished product is on screen? Or is happiness, you know, making a film that not as many people are going to see, but it's all yours and you can stand by it and go, that is entirely mine. Happiness for me is, yeah, exactly that. Making something, writing your own jokes and then performing them on a stage or on the screen and having an audience laugh and go, cool, yeah. I knew that that was going to work. It is yeah. predicting where the audience is going to be on the roller coaster and then, and then getting the fruits of your labor. Like to have spent all of this time researching and working my ass off and rehearsing and doing the craft that is making a movie and then editing it in a small garage in my boxers at times in the heat um, and then screening it on the world stage and hearing uproarious laughter. That is happiness to me. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And the one thing we haven't really uh, talked about in the film, you touched on it, is uh, this data farming thing that is so scary that you read about in the news on an almost daily basis and the fact that all our data is being collected and collated and used against us uh, by any number of companies. And PJ's character, uh, PJ, uh, actually, uh, you know, sort of talks us through that. And it's one of those scenes that you do watch and you immediately go, why the fuck am I on social media? I should delete everything now. <laughs> and then you just never do because you're like, oh, but I might need it for something. Yeah, and people I might, might get go invited to a party and they're like, oh, he's not on Facebook. I'm not going to invite this guy to the party. Yeah, that, that FOMO, that fear of missing out, it's real. Um, and yeah, that's so topical. The last two days, a whistleblower came out and said right. uh, you know, Facebook knows what they're doing to young women. It's terrible and they're not doing anything about it. They won't unless Congress acts to, um, to, to dial these people in, to hamstring them. Um, it's necessary. And then Facebook goes down for 24 hours, uh, which is very suspicious while that's <laughs> happening. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. And um, there are good social media platforms and there are some pretty serious criminals out there that are um, selling information to sway elections. And um, it's nice to be invited to parties, but, it is. Um, it's, it, but, but it's not worth it if, uh, if the bad guys end up winning the presidency. Yeah. But I guess, you know, you, you, you and I, I mean, we, everyone needs it when you work in an industry purely because not just because people go, 
oh, I guess they're not working anymore if you're not on Facebook or whatever, or, you know, you're not tweeting on a regular basis, but it is about being contactable. And, you know, you know, like, like how we start this conversation, sort of being able to exist outside a, a, a sort of old archaic system does require you to sort of be easy to contact. So you, you do kind of need to be on it. Yeah. I, I mean, this is another thing of like, people can find you if they want to, if they need to get your contact information, they can get in touch with you. Even if you're very obscure, like we've been mm-hmm. able to track down people, like we say it in the film, but we've contacted people on Venmo. Like we found, you know, celebrities or people that we wanted to talk to in films. And we would, we would request two cents from them to get their two cents on a script to be like, Hey, would you be interested in working on this movie? And we've gotten coffee meetings out of it. It's insane that like mm-hmm. that works somehow. It made them laugh and they're like, all right, cool. You guys got me. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like there are, there are, there are, it's a dangerous thing. And if there are bad actors who are going to be doing it, it can completely derail someone's life in a very frightening way. It feels like a horror movie or a Twilight Zone episode. Um, but no, I, I think really as a small business, as a small businessman making little movies, it's been incredibly utilitarian to be able to have stuff on, um, on Twitter or on Instagram and some celebrity can reach out and say, hey, I saw you on an airplane uh, in this movie. Would you want to come and act in this new big one? And I go, oh, this is great. Like nobody would have asked me otherwise. It's, it's very mm-hmm. important to have these channels to be connected to people. And then sometimes it can be really corruptive. Yeah. Um- so listen, uh, you're coming over to the UK for the UK premiere, 15th yeah. of October. It's out here. Great time to be back in the theatre, in the cinemas, showing a movie in the cinemas, huh? Have you have you missed it? Have you been back since they reopened? Are they open there? Uh, yeah, they're open here. And I got to go to France and watch the beta test for the first time in a cinema with a crowd, um, which was amazing. And then I came back to Texas to Fantastic Fest and watched it there. Edgar Wright was there the week before. I just missed him, um, oh, man. which sucks. Uh, but he's a pen pal. He's a good buddy. Um, him and Simon Pegg, which is crazy. Um, actually, Simon just emailed me this morning and saw the beta test last night. It was like, oh, my God, this movie. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he was raving about it. Um, but but no, I'm uh, and so I've seen the movie twice now in a cinema and it's killed which is good and then i'm coming yeah i think on the 12th and i'll acclimate for a few days and then go out to the prince charles and see everybody and uh hope people hope people like it i'm sure they will uh jim it's been a pleasure talking to you and i genuinely congratulations on a phenomenal piece of work i love it uh the beta test is a very very special very funny at times horrifying film which is just the way it should be that's too kind. Alex, you're too kind. Thank you so much for having me, man. Hey, been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I, I, I was just speaking to um, uh, the PR team who were talking to me about the movie. I'm going to try and make it down to the uh, the Prince of Wales, so maybe oh, I, no I can buy you a pint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come I'd down. I'd love yeah. that. Let's it's do just it. Buy me a pint. I would love that. I would love to. Hey, have a great day, man. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.